Hello everyone and you're very welcome along to the latest episode of the RacingNews365.com Formula One podcast. My name is Thomas Marr and I'm joined by Dieter Rankin and Mike Seymour. Guys, let's get stuck straight into talking about that Brazilian Grand Prix weekend because what a thriller we had. Let's just talk about Lewis Hamilton though to start. Uh, Dieter, what a weekend from the reigning champion. Absolutely, but we do have to question, uh, Thomas, whether or not he would have been able to catch up as many places as he did without the uh, the sprint race qualifying and also, obviously, without DRS in the fastest car. So although it was a superb drive from Lewis, and I certainly wouldn't like to detract from his on-track performance, I do believe that the various factors, such as the circuit, which enabled him to overtake relatively easily, DRS and the fastest car kind of flattered him. What did you make of that straight line speed that we saw from the Mercedes, Dieter? It's, uh, it's, it's, it's eye-opening. Well, it was baffling for the very simple reason that Lewis seemed to have it, and I, I just didn't see the same sort of speed in Valtteri Bottas's car. And that's what really confused me about that. And again, I'd like to stress that, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not detracting from Lewis's performance at all. Uh, but equally, that, you know, that was a factor that made his overtaking as relatively easy as it was. Well, let's come back to that in a second. Mike, I wanted to talk to you about Hamilton's drive. And, you know, it's one of those champions drives, I think, that we see every once in a while from drivers of his calibre. What what did you think of Lewis's uh, performance on Sunday? (laughs) I mean, where do we even start with that weekend? It was, it has to be the most dramatic weekend of F1 action on and off the track that I've followed in the moment, whether that's as a fan or, or reporter. Um, so incredible from start to finish, extremely engaging, intriguing um, every day of the weekend. But Hamilton's performances, I mean, for sure, there was that straight line speed advantage. The Mercedes is a, a great package and you would expect him to be able to, to make progress from uh, the back of the field. I think that the, the manner in which he did it, the style in which he did it, um, pulling off all of those moves, you know, fine margins, he did everything he could, and you've got to take your hat off um, for the two performances. You know, coming from the back of the grid to P5, then that uh, second engine penalty, meaning a midfield start for the race itself, the Grand Prix itself, uh, and to do it again on Sunday. Sure, he had that pace advantage, but you've still got to do the job at the end of the day. And I always look to Bottas in those situations. Would he have been able to do the same? Uh, even with a freshly fitted Mercedes power unit, I, I don't know that he would have been. So um, it was it was great to see. I think as as Dieter touched on the the sprint format um, really helped this weekend with the circumstances as, as they played out. Uh, so really enjoyable and great performance from Hamilton. Dieter, we can we can move on to talking about the the rear wing controversies and DRS and all that in a few minutes' time. But just looking at the Mercedes engines for the moment. Three engines for the season. Hamilton moving on to his fifth engine of the year. Uh, there are rumours elsewhere of a Mercedes super engine and uh, one that has been designed to do fewer mileage um, at, at a higher performance level, of course. Uh, engine modes no longer permitted, but you could theoretically push the engine hard and then, you know, take a penalty of five places, but still have a much better engine fitted to your car. What do you make of these rumours? 
Well, first of all, I mean, let's not forget that that effectively um, uh, the regulations allow one major upgrade per year, um, which Mercedes took very early on. So that's point one. Point two is, yeah, one could play a strategic game and say, look, we'll stick another new engine in. Christian uh, Horner did say the other day that as far as he knew, and of course this is his, his supposition, that the uh, degradation on the Mercedes engine was bigger than it was on the Honda engine. Now, it's possible that under those circumstances, Mercedes say, right, we'll take the five uh, grid place penalty or whatever, um, and we know that we'll be able to make it up during the race, and we don't run any risk then of of an untoward uh, engine failure, for example. I mean, this is one of the fascinating aspects of Formula One is where you literally – in every single aspect, it's it's a matter of risk and reward. The drivers risk and they get rewarded and sometimes they don't if it goes wrong. Uh, equally, the engineers try something. If it works, wonderful. If it doesn't, they could be slower. Set up, uh, taking the wrong choice of tires. Everything is a matter of risk and reward. So it's certainly not inconceivable that Mercedes are looking at that. And if they are, good luck to them. Hypothetically, if Hamilton was to fit a fresh engine at every race between now and the end of the season and take that risk of starting five positions back but exploiting the extra power then to to come back through, is there anything to stop them in the regulations? Do you think that is against the the spirit of the rules that have been brought in uh, for this three-engine rule? Yeah, Thomas, I keep hearing this term, spirit of the regulations. Ultimately, there's a championship there to be won. Let's be quite blunt about it. There is a championship out there. And if it's within the regulations, and if it's not within the spirit of the regulations, then one could also argue that the regulations weren't written correctly. That they shouldn't, if if the intention was never to allow it, then they should have been written in such a way that it's not allowed that one says one can only have a maximum of four or five engines or whatever the case may be. Um, therefore, you know, I, I don't really buy into the spirit of the regulations thing, to be quite honest. So we've heard a lot about this uh, steering wheel trick that was seen on the broadcast footage, Dieter. What did you make of this DAS-like system? Well, first of all, I, I wonder whether it is an optical illusion. I mean, first of all, DAS is banned. And, you know, I just cannot see Mercedes in any way flouting that sort of regulation. So, you know, let's put that out of mind completely. So then we turn around and we say, well, was there possibly a, a bit of an optical illusion? Uh, the camera, which was airbox mounted, may have been vibrating slightly. Who knows? Um, that said, uh, a Mercedes spokesperson told us that um, the steering system is homologated for the year. Uh, he did say the steering wheel moves in two planes, so left or right only. Um, I'm wondering whether or not, and this is me just sort of playing devil's advocate and being possibly overly suspicious as journalists are, whether or not the steering system is homologated, but if the column is used for something else, that just maybe that would be given permission by the FIA. Uh, and I'm then saying, well, what could be the next thing that they use it for? And I'm saying, well, could they possibly, given where Lewis was using it on the on the straight and just before the braking area, could he actually be possibly using this for, to adjust brake bias? Could he be using this to uh, possibly feed in or feed out some of the electrical power from the from the uh, energy store? Who knows? I mean, it's it's possible that they were able to persuade the FIA that you know we've got a brake 
balance bias uh, knob, we prefer to have it on the steering column moving backwards and forwards, or we're allowed to have different engine modes. Maybe this is their way of setting it. One would actually have to look at it very, very clearly, and also one never knows exactly how the, the FIA would interpret a, a particular regulation. Um, I'm split 50-50 whether it's an optical illusion or whether it is actually used for something other than, and I stress this, other than the steering system, and that they have permission to use that system instead of a, a button or a bar or a whatever. So uh, subsequently, I've, I've heard from a Mercedes spokesperson that effectively um, it is not being repurposed for something else. Um, and that he said that possibly it could be uh, something to do with the lifing of the component, that uh, there could be some wear and tear in the system. Um, yeah, okay, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Let's not forget that under the budget caps, uh, there is obviously an imperative to try and save money wherever possible, particularly given the fact that a lot of these components won't be carried over for next year because of the change in regulations. That said, uh, James Allison is a, a very enthusiastic private pilot. I believe that he's built his own aeroplanes. He comes from um, a flying family. His father was in the British Air Force. Uh, I believe that James originally had wanted to become a, a fighter pilot or similar. And because of that, he'd obviously be aware of the three-dimensional potential of a steering column as you have in an aeroplane. So, you know, I think, I think this one's going to run and run and run. It could be totally innocuous and totally innocent, but equally, I think it's one that we need to watch going forward. So, Mike, one thing that we saw over the course of this weekend was a little bit of an attitude from Mercedes where it almost felt like they were saying that they were up against it, uh, against external forces, which I thought was a little bit strange given that it was an engine penalty. We had the DRS controversy on Friday, but the penalties that were handed down to them were from the FIA, not from any other external forces. Yeah, I think it's just the the heat of the title battle. You know, we're at the, the crunch point now. Um only three races to go following last weekend's race, and it's, it's a really important phase. I mean, the whole weekend in Brazil felt like the 2021 season rolled into one weekend. Um, and obviously seeing that Mercedes-Red Bull battle continue. Um, Hamilton's engine penalty aside, we had the rear wing drama on Friday after qualifying. And obviously that talk of... Red Bull sending people out onto the track to take a closer look and uh, alerting uh, the FAA to uh, something potentially going on with Mercedes' rear wing. Uh, obviously, the rear wing was checked and, and that breach was uh, was found on, on Hamilton's car, leading to the exclusion. Um, and I think all of that pushing and manoeuvring in the background is going to have an impact, but it works both ways. Red Bull do it to Mercedes, Mercedes do it to Red Bull. And I think that's only going to continue into the, the final few races. And maybe Mercedes feel that earlier in the season they could have pushed a few uh, situations a bit further, but took a step back. And um, Red Bull <laughs> really went to town on, on them on the weekend. Um, but let's see what happens over the, the final three races. I, I, I can only imagine that on and off track, it's going to get even more intense. Dieter, Toto Wolff was, was quite clear over the, the remainder of the weekend after Friday that he felt Mercedes had been treated differently uh, according to the Park Ferme rules and regulations. He was pointing to, to Red Bull in Mexico making changes to their rear wings. 
do you think he had a valid point that, you know, that maybe they should have been a little bit more lenient towards Hamilton's DRS issue on, on Friday? Well, I think it's very, very difficult. You know, ultimately, you're either legal or you're not legal. And I have no doubts that what Red Bull did in Mexico was legal. And I also have no doubts that the Mercedes rear wing, the DRS system, was out of the sort of tolerances that are allowed. And accordingly, it failed. I think it was a very harsh penalty, but I don't believe it was an unfair penalty um, uh, in terms of disqualification because, you know, it was 0.2 of a millimeter, I believe. But, you know, if you allow that, you allow 0.4 of a millimeter next time and then 0.6 the time after that, etc. So I think the stewards were faced with a very difficult situation, but ultimately they only had one choice, which was the, um, uh, the, the, the penalty that they handed down. Um, Toto was talking about it was a sort of a common sense buffer almost. Well, again, that you know that that becomes very very difficult. So where does the buffer stop? So if you're if you're outside of that particular buffer, do you now say, well, maybe the buffer should have been bigger? Uh, as far as I'm concerned, the regulations are there to be um, to be administered by the stewards as per the regulations, which let's not forget all the teams have also agreed to. And um, yeah, I think it's just unfortunate that in the Mercedes case, and they haven't explained what happened, but they, because they haven't had the wing back or hadn't had the wing back when I spoke to them, uh, they, they don't know, they can't explain what happened. But again, I think it's an unfortunate circumstance. And I certainly don't subscribe to some of the headlines that I've seen that Mercedes had a cheat wing or whatever. Not at all. I mean, Mercedes would a, I don't believe do that, but B, certainly not at such a critical point in the in the championship battle. Well, while the technical regulations are are particularly clear, uh, you're either legal or you're not. What can be a little bit more um, argumentative is that uh, move from Max Verstappen that we saw, where he went wheel to wheel with Lewis Hamilton into turn four, and pushed him off the track. Of course, they both went off the track. Dieter, if you were a steward. Would you have given Max a penalty for that? Um, I think I would have investigated it a bit more than they did. Uh, that I can say categorically, um, because I thought that the decision that came back came back rather quickly, given the nature of that move. I'm not saying I would have reached a different decision, but I, th- I would like to believe that I would investigate it a bit more than they did. Mike, what would you have done? I'm surprised, to be honest, that the the key angle wasn't available to the stewards in the moment. Um, so being able to see Verstappen's steering wheel input, um, you'd have thought that that would be the case nowadays. So just to make that point quickly, but for me, it goes back to what I've said on this podcast several times. And to make it clear, I love wheel-to-wheel racing. I love close competition and battling. Um, but again, yeah, nine times out of ten, these battles between... Hamilton and Verstappen, they rely on Hamilton backing out just as he did on Sunday. If he hadn't, then you know both could have been out of the race again on the spot or some damage, one drop into the back. Uh, thankfully, they both continued and we had a kind of round two a few laps later and Hamilton got the job done. So um, I think it was a bit cheeky from, from Max. And, and as Dieter said, I think it uh, warranted a little bit more of an investigation. But uh, that's what the stewards decided. Surprised, as I say, that the key camera angle wasn't available to them. Um, I'd be interested to hear their thoughts after <laughs> seeing that post-race. Um, 
So, yeah, as I say, a little bit cheeky. Wouldn't have been surprised to see Max pick up a five-second time penalty uh, on another day. But uh, it wasn't another day, so... Yeah, my opinion of it is that he, uh, I think he got very lucky to avoid getting a penalty there. But given that uh, that the key angle, that the, the forward-facing camera wasn't available to them, do you think the stewards maybe are turning a little bit of a blind eye uh, as the championship reaches its conclusion, Dieter? Well, I think there's also the element of let them race. Uh, and, you know, this was racing. It was very hard. I mean, Toto Wolf actually said that as well. He said um, it was hard racing. Um, what they do need is clarity on this. They need to decide whether what Max did was legal or not legal. Um, and if it's legal, then I think Lewis knows what to do next time. And so does every other driver on, on the grid know what to do next time. Um, but let's not forget, it's always very, very, very difficult to see all angles at the same time. And, you know, the stewards are under pressure to take a decision. Um, if they'd come along with their decision half an hour after the end of the race, everybody would have complained. Now they complain that they took the spontaneous decision based on the information available to them at the time. Um, yeah, you, you can't win, uh, particularly where passions are running and, and emotions are running as high as they are at the moment. Well, it ended up being a pretty bad beat for Verstappen and Red Bull in the end, losing out by 10 seconds at the end of the Grand Prix, having had a 1-2 in the early stages. But what was really, really evident from the Grand Prix was that how powerless Red Bull were down the straights. How worried are they going to be, Dieter, about that? Because it's really too late for, for Honda to do anything to respond if Mercedes have done something on the power unit. Thomas, it really depends on where this additional speed comes from, whether it's power unit related or whether it is aerodynamically or whatever it is. And, you know, I said this uh, during the podcast of the Mexican Grand Prix that I don't believe that it's ever one single and simple factor, that there are a variety of different uh, factors that come together to produce a, a performance advantage. And, you know, we don't know what's under the skin. We don't know exactly what they've done to the underfloor. We don't know what development they've done. And frankly, at this stage, they don't need to tell us either. They don't, they don't need to disclose it. It's different next year where I believe the regulations will ask the teams or force the teams to divulge exactly what the difference is of the car over the last race which, of course, will be very, very interesting. But at this stage, I believe there could be numerous factors, as per should Red Bull be worried. Well, the Qatar uh, circuit, I think, and again, this is a long shot because nobody's been there, but I think that it will probably lean more towards Red Bull. Um, the Jeddah circuit uh, at sea level with um, uh, uh, straights along the Corniche, I think, is more a Mercedes one. So there, I think they should be worried. And then Abu Dhabi, frankly, having been reprofiled, some of the corners changed the cambers and whatever, I think is, is too close to core. But what it does point to is that we're probably going to have a championship that goes all the way down the wire. And regardless of who wins it, it's been a fantastic season. What do you make of Red Bull's interest in the rear wing of the Mercedes? We saw Max touching it in Park Fermi, which he shouldn't have done. He was a very naughty boy there. But we heard that story on uh, Friday morning of Adrian Newey and Red Bull apparently going to the FIA uh, looking for clarification about what Mercedes are doing at the rear of the car. What, what do you make of all that? Well, I mean, let's not forget that Mercedes around the Spanish Grand Prix time uh, went to the FIA and they asked some questions about the red ball wing. I think, you know, this is a bit of a prid quo quo type situation. Um, so, uh, you know, who knows? But I do believe that there are suspicions that the Mercedes wing is moving backwards at very high speeds. 
Um, Red Bull are within their rights to query it. Of course they are, absolutely. Uh, and, you know, let's not forget that Mercedes queried certain of the pit stop procedures that Red Bull used. This is part of the um, back and forth of a very tight, intense championship battle. Both are trying to, to neuter whatever advantage the other one may have over them. It's perfectly normal. It's part of the battle, and it, it should be welcomed. You know, the FIA take the decision. If the wing is illegal, after Red Bull have highlighted it, or even if they haven't highlighted it, it should be changed, and vice versa. If it's legal, allow them to use it. Mike, let's look a little bit further back and at that Ferrari versus McLaren battle over third place. Is this decided in Ferrari's favour now? 31 and a half points with three races to go? It's very much looking like that. Uh, McLaren need a very good Qatar Grand Prix, let's put it that way. Um, but I think it's a combination of the two things. Ferrari obviously making a great step forward. They've got that new power unit. Uh, Carlos and, and Charles are firing on all cylinders and, and getting the maximum points available. Um, and then you look at McLaren and there have been some missed opportunities alongside that. So Daniel running into the back of Valtteri uh, at the start in, in Mexico. And then on Sunday, Lando um, colliding with one of the Ferraris on the run down to, to turn one and picking up that puncture and dropping to the back and only being able to get um, a point and then compounded by uh, Daniel's uh, uh, retirement as well. So it's that combination of Ferrari really working through the gears and, and getting things in order and um, yeah, hitting their top form and McLaren missing opportunities alongside that. So it's going to take quite a lot to overturn that deficit now. I know we were saying on the, the last podcast that uh, the battle isn't over, but I think it's, it's getting pretty close now. And uh, as McLaren themselves admit, it's going to be difficult. Dieter, how, how disappointed do you think McLaren will be considering how much of the year they've spent in third place? Well, let's not forget they finished third last year, but let's not forget they realised that that was really by the grace of Ferrari not being up to scratch last year. So I think that they'd sort of braced themselves for that. And I think the, um, can I call it below par performances of, of Daniel Ricciardo as he was trying to get used to the new team, the new brakes, the, you know, the, the new procedures at McLaren, etc., didn't really help them. So, you know, I think all things being equal, they may actually have been a bit closer to, to Ferrari uh, and maybe slightly ahead of them. But, of course, uh, they paid the price for it with, with Daniel's uh, performances at the beginning of the year. There's been plenty of rumours recently about Audi buying the McLaren Group and those rumours have been very, very strenuously denied uh, at, the, at the time we're recording this podcast on, on Monday afternoon. Um, Audi, McLaren, do you see it happening? Uh, not at all. Well, I say not at all. Certainly not the way that it was published uh, this morning. Um, I do believe that Audi and Porsche, for that matter, have been talking to various teams. Of course they would. They would need to. But certainly the way it was presented, I didn't buy into the story when, when I first read it. Uh, I've subsequently spoken to McLaren. Uh, and they've basically underscored my points. And I'd just like to very briefly run through why I didn't believe that report. The first one, the first one is that the final paragraph said that whoever bought the team, namely Audi in this case, would have access to McLaren Applied, which is the um, the Applied Engineering Division of McLaren. Well, that was sold off in August this year to a um, a hedge fund. Accordingly, that was erroneous. 
The second point is that the sort of headline was that uh, Audi would be looking at buying a team to secure an entry. Well, they don't need to buy a team to secure an entry because the earliest they could come in with their own engines is after the current Concorde agreement expires. And therefore, they could negotiate terms to enter without buying a team. They've got three years to at least three years to build up their own team. And then finally, let's assume they did buy McLaren. What would they go and do? Stick four rings on the nose of a car that's running a Mercedes engine at the back? Because forget not, Audi do not have a power unit at the moment. Therefore, if they bought McLaren, they'd either not race for the next three years or they'd have to use the Mercedes engine. And if they did that, it would look a bit daft having the sort of four rings and also the Mercedes on the on the airbox. Uh, it's the inaugural Qatar Grand Prix. It's big on the MotoGP scene, of course, but uh, this is the first time Formula One has visited the LaSalle circuit. But uh, Mike, are we expecting a more normal weekend of uh, competitiveness between Mercedes and Red Bull at the front this weekend? I mean, it looks like a, or more of a Mercedes track on paper, but we've said so many times this year that this track is a Red Bull track, this track is a Mercedes track, and it's it's changed from our expectations and even throughout each weekend. So um, I think it's, it's like all races right now, it's difficult to call. If anything, you'd give Mercedes the edge, but we'll have to see uh, as the weekend unfolds. I think it's exciting to be heading to a, a new track. Uh, quite a strange uh, experience, actually, to be heading to two new circuits for the final three races in the middle of, or at the end of, um, a really close title battle. So it's just another dynamic, another element and layer to what has been uh, an incredible season. So, um, no, really looking forward to seeing how it plays out as usual. Um, and, and let's see who comes out on top. Dieter, I made the call last week that Lewis would close in on Max in the Drivers' Championship and that he did. So I I just wanted to point that one out that I got that one right. But uh, heading to this weekend and based on what you saw in Brazil and the relative performance of Mercedes against Red Bull, how do you see this one playing out? I think it's going to be very, very tight. As I said earlier on, it's it's not really, when I say not a power circuit, it's not a long straight circuit. I've been there. I was there in 2006 for a Grand Prix Masters race. And um, it's, um, I mean, George Russell said the other day that it's very flowing, etc., which it is, but it doesn't really have the sort of flat-out blast the way we had in Mexico or in, in Sao Paulo. So I think it's going to be very, very close to call. Uh, and I think that, frankly, that's the best thing we could have for the third last race of the season. Well, let's pick ourselves back up again and go again this weekend, the third race of this uh, triple header as we close in on the end of the season. Dieter Rankin and Mike Seymour, as usual, thank you very much for joining me on the Race News 365.com Formula One podcast. You can follow Dieter on Twitter at Racing Lines. You can follow Mike on Twitter at Mike Seymour F1. I'm Thomas Marr. You can follow me at Thomas Marr on F1. That's it for this week. We'll be back after the Qatar Grand Prix.